Hello, and welcome to Furloughed, defining moments worth talking about. I'm your host, Leonard Cochran, and with me is Steve Otterstrom. And Steve, not to dominate the time, but it has been quite a week around the Cochran household. Uh, how, how has your week been first before we delve into before mine? We delve into it. Yeah, you know, it's it's been an interesting week. It's been a historic week, of course. Um, yes, we, we saw yes, the, the inauguration. inauguration of a new president as well come in. Um, so that was that was that was interesting. Um, but yeah, I I being that you and I aren't just uh, podcast people, but that we're friends, I, I have a little bit of an idea of how things have been in the Cochran house. So um, let me just ask you how you're doing. And, um, and yes. maybe you can share what you feel comfortable sharing with sure. um, what 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 has gone on for you this week. Yeah, yeah, sure. Thank you, Steve. And, and uh, I, I know you and I've talked and you're very familiar with the details of what happened this week. But uh, for our audience's sake, um, just share with you briefly now, and I think we'll probably delve into it a little bit more in another podcast. Um, so this uh, Martin Luther King Day, um, as you know, podcast number 11, or excuse me, number 18, my wife shared about volunteering in the nonprofit. And uh, both she and I do volunteer work for a nonprofit that involves uh, helping women recover from addiction. And so Martin Luther King Day at uh, dinner time, we received a call that one of the residents had passed away, had overdosed. And uh, so this week has been a rough week for the family, for her family and for others. Um, and uh, the funeral was held Friday. And so a little more closure there. Um, so yeah, we, we, we don't really want to delve too deeply now. Uh, but there's a lot of, you know, uh, people that don't work with people of addiction, I think have a lot of ideas and a lot of thoughts about that. And so that, that may well be something that we talk about in a future podcast, Steve, kind of the, the addicted brain and, and the impacts of the family. You, know, you and I did have a podcast. We talk about adverse childhood experiences, ACE scores, that comes into play. So even though uh, this lovely lady was in recovery, um, you know, as far as we know, there was one time um, use, but it uh, there's some deadly stuff out there. Fentanyl is a horrible, horrible drug that I, I don't even know what it's used for, uh, but it does not take much at all to take a person further than they intended to ever go. And uh, I, I don't want to delve too deeply into her specific case out of respect for her and her family. But during the, uh, I would say six years, five years that my wife has been involved in helping in recovery with women, uh, this is the third person that I, I have personally known uh, that's, that's not survived and uh, did not complete recovery. So that being wow. said, it, it's a tough thing. There's a lot to unpack. Like I say, we can. Well, I think it'd be best to save that for its own show. Um, but uh, uh, and I would willingly share more about it. Like I say, not not this case specific, this individual specific, but just at large, uh, the risks involved with recovery and and why is it somebody doing so well would slip up and those kind of things. And we can unpack that for another time. Um, but in, in yeah. the interim, uh, 
appreciate everybody's <laughs> thoughts and prayers along the way as we're still recovering ourselves, so to speak. Yes. From what happened. Well, and definitely, you know, the, the work that you do and that your wife Paula does, you know, I, I believe it, it, it it's one of those things that is, is so important. And it's just, yeah, we, we need to come back and spend some time really talking about it again. And so I would look forward to doing that. And, yeah, and, uh, and on the upside with this specific instance, too, uh, at the funeral, uh, there was a family member that spoke and acknowledged, uh, not us personally, of course, but the, the work that had been done and how far she'd come. Uh, the minister himself reiterated that as a part of, uh, you know, it was held at a church and, and he reiterated that as part. And so it was clear that family and friends had seen a traumatic change uh, despite the way things came to an end. And so it, it, it at least was comforting to know that uh, many folks had seen significant, significant change uh, prior prior to, to her departure. So yeah. it, it was really rewarding in that respect. So. Well, my goodness. <laughs> well, I, 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 I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I know, yeah. I know that's not pivot, where we're... Pivot the podcast with that, yeah, Steve. I know, I know that's, yours. that's not necessarily, you know, the, the point of our podcast today. But yes, um, I'm glad that you took a moment and you, you walked us through that because, um, you know, it, it is something that hopefully we can, we can spend a little more time on. Maybe we can even ask your wife, Paula, to join us again at some point mm. in the future because... If there's one thing that I, I, I can say with a bunch with, with, with a lot of certainty, it is that um, addiction appears to find its way into more lives than we realize. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and we all need help with one thing or another. So with that, let me make a hard pivot and introduce <laughs> yes. um, our guest speaker today. Um, you know, we had not last week, last week we talked about um, our experiences um, with you know, being that it was on Martin Luther King Day, we talked about specifically about racism, maybe about isms in, in general. And this week, what we're what we're doing that's that's a little different, although it's very similar. I don't want people to think this is Steve's family channel, since we had uh, my son on a, a couple weeks ago talking about life with autism. Um, we have my dad on today, and I'm really excited about this. I'm a big fan of public radio, and I love the uh, the uh, program StoryCorps. So I yes. kind of have that vision in my mind today that we're going to be doing kind of a StoryCorps experience uh, with my dad. Um, my dad grew up in a small town in Castledale, Utah. Now, if you know where Castledale, Utah is, you're probably one of my family members listening to this podcast. <laughs> it's it's about as big as your, your um, the image in your mind might lead you to believe. Um, even though it is the county seat of Emory County, which makes it really a, a bigger fish in a small pond. But uh, he grew up in a small town of Castledale and um, was born. Dad, do you, do, you, do you want me to say what year you were born in, or is that is that too personal? Oh, sure. <laughs> I'm old enough now. I can be proud of it. All right. So I'll let you be proud of it, and I'll let you say what year <laughs> you were born in. <clears throat> I was born in 1936. So I just turned 84 years old. And and I, we talked about this earlier, but to date, that's the oldest you've ever been, right? As far as I can remember. <laughs> that, 
that's that's good to know. That's good to know. And um, and I don't want to give away too much of this your story in the introduction, but of course, so you were born. Um, you 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 remember a little bit about World War II, right? Is that is that correct? I do remember some things because <clears throat> I had a brother twelve years older than me who was in the war, spent time in uh, Germany, and I guess before that a little bit in North Africa. He was a medic, mm-hmm. and part of the story will involve him. So anyway, um, yes. Uh, I do remember, I do remember being fascinated by airplanes. I do remember being fascinated by the few war movies I saw. Yeah, war was a big thing. It and, ended when I was eight years old. And 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 a lot of the industry there in Castledale was was fueled by the war effort, right? Talk a little bit about the industry in the the town you you grew up in. Okay, Castledale, the industry. <laughs> Uh, at that time, Castledale had, I think, a little less than 800 people. There were other towns of comparable size, some a little larger, some a little less. Huntington, Orangeville, Cleveland, Farron, Emory, and then the little town of Molan, Rochester. They all had been... Uh, come about by people moving in and taking over land close to some stream where they had some little source of water. And But the main industry, and especially during the Second World War, was coal. There's a lot of very high-quality coal, bituminous coal. And <clears throat> in today's language, it'd be called cleaner coal. There's no such thing as clean coal but it's low sulfur and it burns a lot cleaner than most coal. And the coal mines were just running day and night during the second world war. So there was an influx of some coal miners. And now your, your father was a coal miner, but if I remember right, your, your grandfather was also a coal miner. Is that correct? Well, yes, he was as well, but my grandfather also, had a, a farm just east of Huntington, and that's where my dad grew up. Um, my dad and his brother Carlos and his brother Francis were all coal miners, and they earned a good living. Uh, coal mining was a better paying job at that time in that place. And. Uh, <clears throat> And I know today we still sometimes use coal for electricity. Uh, since there was added demand for the coal in that era, was it was it used for other things as well? Excuse my ignorance for not really knowing. Uh, I, I suppose not at fuel, that time. Yeah, no, not of. at that time, but later on, uh, power plants were built along the, the Price River, Huntington Creek. And just a few miles south of Castle Dale, there's a big power plant, the Hunter facility, which furnishes a lot of electricity today from coal to Salt Lake City. Yeah, I think a lot of the the, the hunger or thirst for coal really would have been for people's furnaces that, you know. Oh, yes. Yeah, there were trucks going everywhere. Um, 
of course, the the Mormon or LDS Church was a, a big thing in Utah, and uh, at that time, it had its own fleet of trucks and its own coal mine that yeah. it would haul coal from uh, that church coal mine to Idaho, Colorado, several other states, as well as practically uh -huh. every town in, in Utah to furnish their uh -huh. coal-powered furnaces. I see. Yeah, so it was really an exported product, more so than just local consumption then. That, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think what's interesting about this, and, and of course what, what <laughs> got me to, to, to ask my dad to come on to this uh, podcast today was not necessarily to talk <clears throat> about coal, but I think it's an important um, underpinning. I, I remember even years ago there was um, um, a coal mine collapse out here in Utah. And I remember watching it just so intently and being, you know, like, why am I, why am I so into this story? Um, and it dawned on me, you know, multi-generations in my family had, had, had come out of, of coal mines. Um, however, the, the reason I, I, I wanted to get my dad on today is, is he recently completed um, writing a book of which there are upwards of 12 copies in print. <laughs> there could even be more if if uh folks on this podcast wanted to buy one but um but it it it, it i got mine for christmas um i think it's probably the christmas present that uh dad has put more work into than any other christmas present uh that ever came about uh i, I read it the very next day and um was just entranced by by every part of it and part of it you know is because it's i, I felt like it was a glimpse into um the past <laughs> i always grew up hearing about my dad um in fact if 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 you wouldn't mind um i i had the opportunity uh to to write the forward with my sister uh to the book dad do you mind if i if i read that out no that's fine <laughs> it, it starts out when dad lets his kids proofread his book before publishing, he takes a, a great risk, and you definitely took a great risk. In this case, there is no exception. This forward has not been uh, written with the knowledge or approval of the author. We're the result of being raised by a dad whose family built a premier theater using the bricks and nails that had once been used to involuntarily confine people to uh, construct a facility where a community of desert farmers and miners paid money to escape the difficulties of life for a couple of hours. And I think what that's referring to is they actually uh, recycled a lot of the material from uh, the old courthouse that also had a jail attached to it um, in order to build the theater. Of course, there, of course, this isn't uh, where the story for us began. Some of our earliest memories involve snapping beans and potting peas while we were watching classic movies on a rented VCR. Our dad would tell us stories about watching these movies in his family's theater. As we watched these films on the old tube television, we couldn't help thinking that our dad had a blessed childhood. We knew little about the sacrifice and the ingenuity it took to create such an unusual edifice in such an unassuming place. If his childhood was blessed, it was because his family knew to dream in a place and a time where it seemed wholly impractical. Each day when grandpa and his brother Carlos entered the mines, they hoped to cheat death for another day. Leaving the mines permanently was their persistent goal. To that end, they raised chickens, built cinder blocks, attempted to grow alfalfa in alkaline soil, but the theater was their most audacious plan. 
now there's more to the um, uh, <laughs> the the forward. We could read that out, and then anybody wants to get the book, they could they could read it. But I wanted to kind of share from a kid's perspective, looking at and hearing dad's stories about how when he was a kid, he had his very own movie theater. And I thought two things. One, dad, you must have been so rich. <laughs> and two, it wouldn't matter if you were rich because you could watch movies whenever you wanted. <laughs> but maybe the story was just a little bit different than that. <laughs> um, how about how about we do this? Um let, let's start. Tell us. Let's let's start with with the beginning. We talked about the coal mines, um, and we talked about the um, the multi generational aspect and what coal was used for. Um, but maybe put yourself in the shoes of, of your own father. What do you think was going through his mind at that time? What, tell us about his desire, maybe to get out of the coal mines. Maybe what you observed in Castledale that would lead to his desire to want to not be in the mines anymore. Well, okay, I'll talk just a little bit about the builders. That would include my father and Carlos and their wives and the family itself. It was such that the wives had a lot of influence on what they wanted to do. Uh, I remember Carlos's wife, Lavina, really wanted her man, to not go back in the coal mines. He had quit the coal mines for a while and had a, a sawmill. Um, for a while, it was located near the Moreland entry to a mine, and he had a contract where he he cut rough lumber from up in the Manta de Sal Mountains, the uh, Gentry Mountain, and would haul on a truck down to the entry to the mine. He would cut lumber there timbers or whatever he did, and then that would be sent into the mine. But, <clears throat> um, and my mother knew as well as Levina did that on practically every block in Castle Dale lived a coal miner's widow. Mm. It was very common to know a woman whose husband had died in a coal mine or been injured, at least injured. So this was a theme that was kind of running deep within the Otterstrom families. Um, and we've already talked a bit about the, the small economy. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so it became, well, I think I should bring in my Brother Glenn at this time, because we haven't mentioned about him yet. He was 12 years older. He was in the Army during the war. He came home safe and sound. And so he had a decision to make, too, what he was going to do with his life. Mm -hmm. And he, he kind of wanted to stay in this rural community, too. There's a lot to be said about the things that you can do and see in a small community. Uh, you had beautiful mountains to the west with lakes and people who like to hunt deer could do so. If you go the other way, you had <clears throat> the beautiful rock formations. Now people think of them as the red rocks near Moab and so on. Uh, somewhat similar in the area that I lived in. 
So anyway, there's a desire to stay in the area, but how could you earn a living? And in the book I, I mentioned, they would say, well, what can we do? Now, what they could do at that time, Carlos and, and Eugene both had what they called the papers. The papers being they had passed the examinations and had the authority to use the explosives mm. that were used in the mines at that time uh, to loosen the coal. And they got paid a little more money. I don't know just how much, but they got paid more money for that job as well. Um, <clears throat> and when you say Carlos and Eugene, Eugene is your father. Yes. Carlos is uh, my uncle. uncle. Is they were brothers. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> Glenn <clears throat> was Eugene's son, my brother, and so there were these three adults who all wanted to stay in Emory County, but they didn't really want to go into the coal mines. Well. <clears throat> Uh, they'd have to repeatedly ask these questions of one another, what can we do? I wrote in the book, today many employers who are considering hiring someone will ask, what is your educational background? Eugene and Carlos could have answered, uh, we went to school six or eight years, but sometimes we had to stay home and help with the farm. Glenn could have answered, I was a student at Utah State Agricultural College before going into the Army. And they had had experience with farming. They knew that this was not really a good answer to the question of what we can do and earn a living. That's a good living. And in a lot of ways, the problem with farming out there had to do with the soil itself, right? That Oh, yes. Alkali, which is a salt, the more you irrigate, which is necessary in that humid or not humid, but dry environment, the more you irrigate, the worse your soil becomes as it draws that those salts to the surface. And, and I think there were several people that maybe made money for a couple of years growing alfalfa and then and then they couldn't grow anything after that. Is that is that correct? That's right. Um, but. Because they'd had experience with farming, I wrote also, like most farmers who learn to fix things or do almost anything as a farmer, the Otterstroms had each become a jack of all trades. They had built a home for their parents on the Otterstrom farm. Glenn had received a little formal training in woodworking in high school, and he was handy with a hammer. And then in 1945-46 period, um, they successfully remodeled the, the Wink Sealy home where I was raised. They took out uh, the ceilings, which were very high on the lower level, but the rooms were very close to the ceilings on the upper, and this evened things out and made things better. They put in a very nice staircase to replace what had almost been a ladder in the past. So they had some experience doing this type of work. Um, they had put in new wiring in the Sealy home, um, and some plumbing was changed. So yeah, they were kind of jacks of all, tr- all, all trades. 
and, and so they they took these you know they, they and i i know i know farm people they usually are even today <laughs> you run into a farm person um and they 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 fix all kinds of things they have different ways but this is a big jump to go from we've remodeled a house to now we're going to build a modern theater in the middle yeah. of the desert well, uh, before before they quite got to that i mean what we've talked about is kind of answering the question, what can we do? Then the next question is, what what should we do? Mm-hmm. And none of the Castledale businesses were growth industries <laughs> clamoring to hire more workers. Mm-hmm. And that was true for the other Emory County towns as well. And I believe it was Glenn who came up with the suggestion Let's build a movie theater. And Carlos and Eugene felt this was worth considering. And so over a period, your brother, he's the young one in the group. Yes, he's the the young one of the three. Now later they had a legal partnership that was called the Otterstrom Brothers, but really only two of them were brothers. <laughs> the other was Glenn, but the legal paper said that the, the three of them were the Otterstrom brothers. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, if they were going to have a theater, they had to <laughs> do a lot of thinking and planning. Uh, would people patronize a movie theater? That was a question. Because you're talking about well, a town of 800 people, right? Yes. However, Farron to the south had probably a little over a thousand. Emory Another 10 miles to the south of that had probably another six or 700. Uh, there were Clawson in between and some other things. So you're, you're getting, you know, three times the population of Castledale there. Then to the Huntington, it had probably close to 1,400 people. Um, and there was Cleveland and Elmo. So there were, you know, a few thousand people in the county, the west part of the county. Green River was part of the county, but it was so far to the east with so much uh, barren desert between. <laughs> it was this entity in, unto itself. <laughs> yeah. So we can't count Green River. <clears throat> and, and Craig, if we could, for the context of history, we're, we're talking in the later 40s now, I believe, right? Yes. Um, the end so of how... the war. It, and so for those of us that might be a little younger, <laughs> how, how common were theaters at that time i know obviously theater was around in the 20s at least silent theater and whatnot but so just to kind of add to that risk or thought of building a theater was that something that you know a lot of smaller towns had or was that something you had to commute to the bigger cities to go find and help help us kind of understand that a little bit as well okay um I'll answer it by reading another paragraph here there you go (laughs) would people patronize a movie theater What were the existing entertainments in Emory County? Well, there were radio shows that were popular. They were very popular. Dragnet, the FBI, Amos and Andy, on and on. There was just a lot of good radio shows on. And, of course, there were phonograph records. And... In Emory County and many places in Utah, the LDS Church sponsored activities, 
Um, and in many of those areas, that included movies maybe once a week. And in fact, in Castledale, the LDS Church furnished a movie once a week in the Ward House. And the Ward House had originally been the Emory State Academy. And its old chairs were on a wooden floor that created noises every time someone shifted positions. And sometimes a screaming baby would detract from the dialogue. The projection equipment had problems. It was common for the film to break or other problems to interrupt the movie. And so anyway, the officer was made in made discreet inquiries that indicated that local church leaders didn't like being in the movie business, but felt it was necessary for, for community entertainment. So yes, the answer to your question, movies were popular. And in the bigger places, even in Price, 30 miles to the north, it had a movie theater that was very popular. Salt Lake City had probably a dozen theaters. Uh, the Villa was really a tremendous theater. It had close to 2,000 people. It would hold about 2,000. So, yes, movies were popular. So so they've, they've determined these movies are popular. And, you know, <laughs> to kind of move us into the building of it, or the, the, I think the next challenge they have in, in determining this is um, getting getting financing, right? I mean, you've got... Um, uh, a couple of coal miners and and a World War II vet uh, who was a medic and <laughs> maybe jack of all trade, but they now are going to a bank because I didn't they didn't have money to do this, and they also were going to a bank and saying we need building materials because they they built the whole thing themselves, right? I, Pretty I know, much. I know Pretty today. Much. If, if I walked into a bank and said, hey, I need money for building materials, I'm going to make a modern theater, I would be laughed out of the bank. And so, so how did they go about securing this financing? Well, first, they inventoried what they had themselves. Um, Glenn had some money saved from the war. Carlos had a sawmill, a truck for hauling timber and a quarter of a city block in Castledale. And on that property stood the old Emory County Courthouse, which is a good sized building. And tearing down that building could supply some material for a new building. And my dad, Gene, had a quarter of a block in Castledale, uh, which he'd bought from his mother-in-law. And on that property, besides the house, were chicken coops, 300 laying chickens, a pig pen, a pig, a Holstein cow, a small corral, a milking shed, and an outbuilding that stored a variety of tools that we used for cleaning and storing eggs. Well, let I, me I was imagine I'm for the you to say a partridge in a pear tree. There. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me just but... just add if if I'm the banker today and you bring that inventory <laughs> list to me, you're not helping your case. We have a pig, we have a cow, uh... <laughs> we have a bunch of chickens. <laughs> we have got a sawmill. Did I mention that? And then there's a building we can tear down. So <laughs> you, you've made your point, Stephen. <laughs> it was a valid point, and it worried them. And uh, so. There were two banks that were close. 
They're both located in Price, which is located 30 miles north of Castledale. And the Otterstroms had accounts kind of in a mixture of each. I, Carlos had some, I think, in the Carbon Emory Bank, and I don't know, Glenn may have had it in the First National, and I'm not sure where my folks had it originally. But they decided they would go to the Carbon Emory Bank first and ask them for the money because it, it even carried the name of Emory County. And during the Depression, not that many years before, there'd actually been an Emory County Bank. And it had consolidated with the Carbon Bank when the Depression came along. So, so this is the local well, option for local boys, right? Yeah, so we thought, they thought they'd go there first, so they did. They went there and asked to see a person who would be in charge of commercial loans. And they were directed to a lady and uh, she listened to them for just a very few minutes. And it became obvious where she was going with this. She said, I'm not sure Emory County farmers want to see movies. And if they do, they can drive the 30 miles to Price. <laughs> and she felt it was a preposterous idea, as I'm sure many people did. <laughs> but did they I tell really, her about the cow and the pig? <laughs> they didn't have a chance. <laughs> and the they didn't get that far. They <laughs> didn't get that far. And so... <clears throat> Um, with much trepidation, they went next to the First National Bank. This is the non-local... Well, it, it's in price. Oh, okay, but this it, is a corporate it, it, bank. This is... Well, I guess, yeah. It, yeah, uh, yeah, it would be a corporation. And anyway, they were introduced to the bank manager, Ray Walters. They got to know him very well by name. And he listened to them talk. And he asked questions. And it went on and on and on. And they explained everything. And I'm sure they even brought up the pig and the cow. <laughs> <laughs> and the chickens. <laughs> but, but more important, I think, he realized too, which they had said, that if they had to have some extra capital when they started building this thing on their own, they could return to the mines and get some capital and they they could earn for that era in that place a good living in the coal mines. And so the result of that interview was, you guys can do it. And um, he was instrumental in seeing that they got two loans, one from the First National Bank and another loan from the First Bank of Helper, Utah. And so with that, they were able to pursue it further. And well, actually prior to them going for the money or going for the, the, the loans, they went to Salt Lake and their chief advisor in building a fine theater 
was a man by the name of Phil Gus at Intermountain Theater Supply. At Intermountain Theater Supply, you could buy everything from carbon arc projectors to popcorn poppers to anything that could be used in, in a theater. And they also did um, contract work in interior decorating of theaters. And then just within that same block was called Film Row. Film Row was a row of offices representing different film companies, such as 20th Century Fox, Metro-Golden-Mayer, Allied Artists, RKO, United Artists, Universal International, Paramount, Warner Brothers, and there were others. And here films would be booked months in advance. Also newsreels, cartoons, and short features were booked so that the customer would always get two hours of entertainment. So they'd done some research in that angle too to see what it cost to rent the films, how they would do it, and also a relative of Carlos's wife, Levina, in Vernal, Utah, the Shiners had built a theater in Vernal, and Carlos spent a day or so visiting with them and seeing how they operated their theater. So they did some homework. And that a lot of that happened before they went to see Ray Walters at the bank. So they had the know-how, and now Ray Walters has given them the financing. And I'm curious at this point, um, this is not in your book, but um, you're, you're, you remember this, right? I mean, you, you lived during this time. The war ended oh, yeah. when you were eight. Um, what's going through your mind when you're thinking, my parents are going to build a movie theater? Wow, this is neat. <laughs> yeah, That's what was going through my mind. There were no thoughts about, is the financing going to work? Or, no, or does my uncle and dad all. know how to build this? No, I yeah. I had none of those concerns. This was a wow. You're going to be the coolest kid at school soon. <laughs> I, I think the only thing comparable to me would have been if you'd come home and said, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to buy Disneyland. <laughs> Actually, I, I do remember as a kid, there was a time, because um, you worked at the phone company the whole time, uh, most of the time I remember growing up, there was a brief period of time that you worked in the coolest job ever as a burn security agent, and you had a badge. <laughs> and I remember thinking, dad is really cool. He wears a badge. I thought you were a cop at the time. Now I know you're a burn security agent. But that aside, I remember um, working at the phone company. They, there were always moments where downsizing, and there were times that you were concerned that you'd lose your job. And at one point when you looked like you were going to be laid off, or maybe you had been, but then somehow kept your job later on, um, that you and mom did go around looking at, at buying um, a business in, and running yes. your own business. And uh, one of the businesses you looked at, and I don't know how serious you looked at it, but from my from my childhood eyes perspective was the coolest was a popcorn company that uh, that did all kinds of flavored popcorns. And I think you came home nice. with some samples. And I remember thinking and I remember telling my friends, we're going to own the coolest popcorn company in the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still see that building. Um, 
uh, and it's still empty. And so I'm glad you didn't buy it. <laughs> it's still empty. <laughs> that's, a, that's a sign right there. Uh, Stephen, you may may not remember or know this, but one of the reasons that we decided not to do that was that we talked to um, Mark Hatch, the uh, person, the accountant, certified public accountant. We asked him to, you know, give us an opinion. And he couldn't even get the person to uh, align to see their books. <laughs> <laughs> so that told us something. So, yeah, I, I only bring that up to say that this must have been way neater uh, to, to have a your, oh, yeah. family building. Now, um, giving, give us the fi- family dynamic at this time. So you have all of you, you. Carlos is living with you, correct? And, no, 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 oh, no. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Carlos has has got his own family. That's right. Yes, um, uh, and and uh, but your your brother Glenn is living with you, right? Yes. In in the uh, I guess we could call it the Sealy home or in your home and your and your. We could call it the Otterstrom home now. We call it the Otterstrom home now. So in your home, you it's you, um, your your dad, your mom. Uh, your older brother Carlos, who's come home from the war, I believe. Or Glenn. I'm mean, Glenn. Sorry, getting the names wrong. Yes, Glenn, who's come home from the war. Um, your grandmother is living with you at that time. Is that correct? <clears throat> yes, my mother and dad bought the home we lived in from uh, my mother's mother, and she continued to live there until she died at age 95. But also living in our family was my grandmother's brother, uh, Uncle Will. He'd be my great uncle. But he he was well up in his 60s. Uh, He had never married. He uh, had spent much of his life as a sheep herder in Wyoming, somewhere near Kemmer. And so we did have several generations there. There's my dad and mother, and the, well, actually, let's start with my grandmother and Uncle Will. They were the older generation, then my mother and father, and then Glenn. He was just in his early twenties, and then there was me and my brother Paul, who was four years younger. So it was quite a spread in uh, in ages in our family. Uh, Uncle Will was just glad to have a home to live in during his declining years because he just really didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a help to the family. He loved animals. And when we had animals, he took much care of the cow and the chickens and so on. The things that got you and the wall. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> There's a cow and the chicken that got you the loan, so. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> so anyway, um, and that I, was kind of that. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and I also wonder if, if part of your parents' decision and your family decision is is Paul um, had had some special needs as well. Um, do you want to tell a little bit about, about Yeah, Paul? I can. When, when Paul was born... Things were normal for him. But within the first day or two of his life, 
he had an extremely high temperature. And the doctors explained it kind of this way, that that high temperature destroyed um, the communication from the brain to the muscles. Uh, they explained it this way, that if he had, had his hand put on his hot stove, he would get the message to his brain that it was hot, but he couldn't get a message back to the muscles as to what they should do. Uh, Paul could never walk. He could never talk. And so, yes, he did need special attention. And uh, my grandmother and Uncle Will helped a bit with him. And certainly my mother had the heavy duty with that. Mm -hmm. And as I got older, I had a bit to do with it too. And I enjoyed playing with him on the floor, building blocks. And um, sometimes if he was close to something I had built up high with wooden blocks, and his kind of uncontrolled movements would knock it over, he would be delighted. <laughs> his thinking process was sharp. Now, there was a way that we came to communicate with him more directly than with speech. He understood us. That was obvious. But my dad, when he was home during the day, Sometimes he was gone, of course, but or in the evenings, he worked different shifts too in the coal mines. But he would often be the one to hold Paul and feed Paul at the dinner table. And there was an occasion where he had been feeding Paul with a spoon and Paul pushed his tongue against the spoon and kind of kind of almost forcefully pushed the spoon out. And my dad said, have you had enough? And he just kind of smiled. And that was the start of the communication. Any question that we was asked that was a yes or no question, if it was, do you want to go to the bathroom? And he didn't need to go he would stick his tongue out. <laughs> Do you want more to eat? And he wanted more to eat. There'd be a smile. And so that's how we communicated more directly with him. Hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, I, I think, <laughs> and I've heard that story before, and it sounds like, and I don't know if, um, if you remember exactly kind of the emotion or the excitement of it, but it sounds like that was such a tremendous breakthrough that prior to that, there really was very little other than guessing as to what Paul's thoughts or needs were. And, and all of a sudden there was now a window where you could communicate directly. It's, do, do, you re, do you remember that happening? Do you remember like, okay, now let's ask him all the questions we haven't asked before or. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, kind of vaguely. I, and then it was talked about. And mm -hmm. so uh, to some degree, it was I was there. To some degree, it's what I remember being said later. And, and I remember you telling me as well that, of course, back in that time, there really wasn't 
resources available for people with special needs. There were institutions um, that you could drop them off at and never see them again, but there weren't resources for helping, at least in not in Castledale, <laughs> uh, for helping uh, people with special needs. And so your parents were really completely on their own, right? There wasn't... Yes. They, for the nine years that he lived, there was a never a night that he didn't have to get up at least once. And so my parents would have kind of shifts in a way of Paul fussed in the night because he's, he shared the bed with them. Mm -hmm. That double bed had my dad, my mother, and Paul in it. And, and there, there were folks that, that believed that they, they should, they should take him to an institution, right? There were, there were, there were uh, yes, there were people that, that suggested that because they thought, you know, it was ruining my parents' life, which in some respects it was, that they couldn't bring themselves to dropping him off, so to speak, at American Fork. American Fork was called the um, training school, American Fork training school. And that's where some very retarded people were put. It was an institution by the state. And I guess they technically probably could have left him there, but they couldn't bring themselves to do that. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's kind of, if I could interject, it's it's kind of interesting, Craig, as you share that and just um, knowing, uh, honestly, the hardship involved as you're describing it, it, it really goes back to what you were talking about with the theater and thinking about the theater earlier. I wrote it down because it, it was simple, but it was great is what can we do and then what should we do? And it sounds like they were confronted with those same questions with your brother as well. That's, you know, they, that's they, obviously, they obviously could have done a lot of things, uh, but then when they asked what should they do, they felt in the best interest of their child and their own family decision, they felt it was best that they did what they did. And, uh, just, just, a great little life lesson there. I just kind of wanted to point yeah. that out. That's really good. Well, let, let's let's maybe pivot back to the theater because the poor thing hasn't been built yet, and I know we're getting closer to the end of our time. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, so the the brothers who are not all brothers, um, Otterstrom, uh, they they go over and and they use their their jack of all trades, and they 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 begin to build this. I remember even hearing you tell stories about maybe pulling nails out of boards of the old courthouse and straightening those nails to be reused. And, yes, that was done. And um, so they're, they're building this, this theater. And I know there's a, there's a story about the, the rooftop and these huge trusses that they had to have professionally built somewhere else that were shipped in for the roof. And, um, you know, of course, they, they've only had experience moving big bales of hay, I guess, <laughs> with a, like a farm type crane that's used to, to move alfalfa. And, and uh, now they've got these great big trusses that are coming in um, to put on the roof of the theater. And uh, if I remember right, some people didn't think this was going to work very well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We, we've skipped a lot on the building, but that's, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Uncle Will, uh, this this fits with the story of Uncle Will. 
Uncle Will was not above drinking beer. <laughs> and there was a beer parlor just a couple of doors away from where the theater was built. And there were a lot of men that would spend their days there who were out of work or some elderly people who spent their uh, social security or whatever in there drinking beer and whatever. And they watched the, the progress of the building of the theater over the many months and so on. And when it got to the point where these big steel beams needed to be raised up and put over the concrete pillars that they had to rest on perfectly. Um, Uncle Will told us that there was, you know, a lot of people in the beer parlor over there that thought the Otterstrom's had bitten off more they could chew to be able to put those heavy metal beams up that high. But as you said, um, they brought in a big wooden derrick from a local farmer who used it for moving hay around and hooked up each beam one at a time and was able to lift it effortlessly pretty much up to the cement pillars and Glenn who was not afraid of heights would go there and make sure it rested perfectly on these cement pillars. Well there's kind of a family legend that some bets took place in this beer parlor that a little gambling went on there once in a while. And um, their Uncle Will was maybe just a little bit richer uh, <laughs> than buying beer money the next day. <laughs> and, and um, yeah, <laughs> I, I always enjoyed hearing that story. I think I, it's one of the early stories I remember hearing um, my grandmother tell me, or your mother, <laughs> that uh, there, there was certainly a lot of pride um, in the Otterstroms that day that they had gotten it in. And I know um, there's a lot more that goes into the story of building, but let's let's get into, let's open the theater because I don't want to end this podcast without getting the theater open at least. And we're looking at July 2nd, 1948. Okay. The movie theater opens. And, and before we go into the history side, I want to know little Craig going into this theater. <laughs> What what were your thoughts? What were what what did did you have a private screening? Did you get to like, hey, we're going to play with this ourselves before we let other people come in? Um, what was your experience? Well, the day before the opening, in the afternoon, the uh, Otterstrom kids and family were treated to a um, not not the full movie but a cartoon hmm. that was going to be part of the opening the next day. And uh, there were certainly a lot of smiles and <laughs> certainly Paul had plenty of smiles hmm. and I don't remember who held him in his seat, but anyway, someone always had to hold him because he couldn't sit by himself. But uh, yeah, it was a big deal. 
And then my I had almost forgotten about this, but my cousin Luana reminded me of this a few years ago that um, I'll first just describe the entrance to the theater. Beyond the ticket selling booth, there was kind of a foyer or maybe 15 feet or so, and then it opened into the lobby. In the lobby, there was beautiful red wool carpet. And in the lobby, and where it branched off to go to each of the entrances to the aisle to the auditorium, had been placed banks of floral arrangements. Mm. I mean, you think when you go to a, a funeral, nowadays some of it's well known, there's a lot of flowers. It was kind of like that in the whole lobby. And this was flowers that had been sent by the bank itself, by companies in price that the auditors had bought materials from, uh, from local people and businesses that were congratulating them by <laughs> sending these flowers. It was just banked with flowers. And so it was, it was kind of like the whole city, the whole county, and the whole area were happy for what had happened. And my understanding is that it was a tremendous success, at least, you know, for the first few years it was open that, you know, you, it was. Had, you had people who came three times a week to see the three different shows that, oh, yes. uh, that were played. And, and, uh, you know, that I, I remember hearing how your brother liked to sit there and or sit on someone's lap, <laughs> someone would hold him and uh, loved watching every every movie that came through. Um, I know you did a lot of a lot of cleaning. You became very good at um, picking up. I, I, you did the math in your book and we'll let people read the book to figure out what the math is <laughs> on how much popcorn ended up being um, you know spilled upon the floor that you had to pick up um, and and uh, and get cleaned out before the next uh, group came in because popcorn sales were a big thing. Uh, but it didn't make enough money to keep um, everyone out of the mines, did it? No, it didn't. It, it certainly very easily paid off the debt. And so it was looked at as something that would probably be a really good supplement for the three families in the long run and for retirement. But it was not enough to support three different families and pay off a debt. And, and and your father did end up going back into the mines. Yes, as did Carlos. And uh, Carlos went back and worked in the Hiawatha mine. And he was a fire boss again, using explosives and so on. But anyway, there was a a rock that came loose in one of the um, rooms and fell on him and some other men. Uh, it broke one of his legs. The other men were hurt a bit, but minimally. And Carlos always had a bit of a limp the rest of his life because of that rock falling on him. Uh, my dad went back to work in mines and my 
brother-in-law, Omer, told me how he seemed very restless the last <laughs> year of his life because he he changed minds several times. Um, I think he worked in Sunnyside for a while, and then he moved to Hiawatha. And um, Omer said that he thought there was a safer situation there. And then he became dissatisfied with it, and he took a job at Kenilworth, another mine. And um, there, the the day after Christmas in 1952, there was what's called a bounce, which someone explained to me could be similar to a small earthquake. But anyway, the he was following up the drillers who drilled the place for the explosives to go, and he would stand at the face of the coal, putting in the explosives. And um, this bounce caused the face of the coal to cave in. So he was immediately completely buried and crushed in coal and was killed instantly. And so, you know, that you talked at the beginning about every block having a coal miner's widow on it. And now that was, was your, your home was yes. one uh -huh. on the block. So it, it, there, there's several ironies in this. And one of them is that they went into this business with the hope of not working in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. And the other irony is they hope to make a good living from it. And the irony there is that soon after they had paid off the debt for the movie theater, things were nice and clear. Television was beginning to really take a toll on the customers. People who bought television were staying home to watch their flickering black and white pictures, mm -hmm. which they'd paid money for, and now they had to get their money's worth, mm -hmm. until it got to the point where the rocket was going in the red. And uh, they made a decision at uh, that time. My dad was dead by that time, but um, Carlos and Glenn and my mother, that they would run it one more year and see if people would leave their black and white flickering televisions and come back to Cinemascope, Technicolor movies that were much higher fidelity. But that didn't happen. And so a year later, they had their last movie. And uh, it was closed. Then the Otterstrom Brothers Company still existed. And it was able to for the following reason. Um, the US government, the Bureau of Reclamation, was building a whole bunch of dams, the big uh, Echo Park Dam, the Glen Canyon Dam, 
and also in connection with that was the a smaller Joe's Valley Dam, which was west of Castledale and Orangeville, and would supply water for the, the farmers. And the, the Bureau of Reclamation needed office space for the building of that dam, for the people, the engineers, the inspectors. They needed parking space for their vehicles. And it was printed in the paper that they would have their headquarters in Price because that's where they could get a building with office space. Well, Glenn saw this and thought, hmm, we have this building. It's more than big enough to cover the office space they want. All we have to do is put in a second floor in what's now the auditorium. We have a huge professional building. So he was able to convince the powers that be at the BLM that they could have office space in Castledale that would save them 30 miles, well, actually more like 45 miles traffic every day up to the dam site uh, from Price. Saved them a heck of a lot of money. And so they went back this time to the First National Bank, <laughs> where they immediately had a good credit rating, and they borrowed money again to remodel the theater, and it became the Rocket Professional Building. Now, the irony related to that is that just before they paid off the final payment of their debt, the BLM moved out just a little earlier than they said they were going to stay. So again, they went through borrowing money, a whole lot of work, with very little money coming back. That's the irony again. <laughs> It is. It is interesting how <laughs> it 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 is. It is like this this story of almost success followed by tragedy, <laughs> followed by almost yeah. success. <laughs> um, but I do believe there are some success stories, some big ones that came out of it. One is you never worked in a coal mine. Um, you you became a teacher, and then you you worked at the phone company, and um, were able to make enough to get all your kids through through school <laughs> um, as well. If you could, and I know we're getting quite right towards the end of our time here, and Leonard's got to get his his breakfast here soon, so <laughs> don't want to keep him too much longer. But um, if you could look back, if you could bring back the the Otterstrom brothers, and and bring them into today's time. <laughs> um, do you think they would have said it was worth it? Do you think they would have, and I know I'm asking you to, to think about something that's really impossible, but you know, what, what do you think would be their message <laughs> out of, out of all this? I mean, would they have done it again? <laughs> um, they probably would have. I don't know. Maybe if they 
could have looked ahead and seen how things were going to go. I don't know. I think they would have done it. Um, I think it certainly uh, kept the family closely associated with one another. Uh, related to that, I would say that once the building was in operation, they had to divide the operation so that there'd be somewhat equal work put in. Like, who's going to do the janitor work? Who's going to run the projectors? Who's going to be the bouncer, so to speak? <laughs> um, and they they did this, to my knowledge, without any arguments. I'm not aware that they ever had fights over who would do what. They just talked things over and accommodated one another when people had to be accommodated. And so for the most part, when my dad was alive, he was the one that met the public. He was the one that, if there was a rowdy person in there, and that was rare, I, don't, I, I can't personally remember of it ever, but um, my dad could be stern if he had to be. And uh, <clears throat> when he would start walking down the aisle and there were kids on the front rows starting to get awful noisy, they saw him coming, they'd shut up immediately. <laughs> but, and Glenn and Carlos often were the ones running the projectors. Later on, uh, when Carlos had his accident and uh, after my dad died, there were other people that worked in the projection room along with Glenn. Um, so there were other people that were hired and got income from that as well. Angie Hayward worked uh, in the popcorn candy booth. The total period of the rocket being open is the theater. And, and she earned Social Security from that, which helped her in her retirement. You know, I, I think I think it's interesting it's, as, as we get ready to wrap this up, but one of, we've had many people on here, really successful business people um, come on, and they've always measured their success in dollars and cents. And, and I think it's, it's really interesting and maybe one of the lessons to come away from it. It worked, right? It, it, the debt got paid off. Uh, people, and, and in fact, in the end of your book, uh, what I found most interesting was um, just story after story after story. Well, not story, but brief memories. Some are longer than others. People who grew up and they, they escaped life for a little while going into the theater and watching movies. And I don't know if there's any way, you know, when it's chapter 14, it's called memories. I don't know if there's any way to really quantify the amount of joy, the amount of happiness um, that what maybe ended up being business-wise, not a, a terribly successful venture, but um, in the human capital side of things, outrageously successful. Well, maybe, maybe if I read just uh, what Teresa Wilberg Bradley wrote. Um, oh, Bradley. Now, her one of her sons was a seven-foot 
center in the NBA for a number of years too, but that's beside the point. And you can see him on Space Jam if you want to see him today, <laughs> the movie. <laughs> anyway, anyway, she wrote, I loved that theater. It seemed so big, so new, so wonderful. I can still see it in my mind. That beautiful, colorful carpet. I would go in the cry room with my mom when my little sister was a little noisy. I would walk to the show with my friends and watch Superman movies. I'm sure we went to other movies, but for some reason I remember the Superman movies. My father would take us to any movie that was about World War II. I remember your mother, Dora, and Mrs. Hayward. They'd be working there, and every time I'd walk to the counter to buy some candy, Mrs. Hayward would reach in the case and pull out a Carmelo bar because she knew that was what I wanted. We were so sad when the theater closed, and we're told we had to go to Huntington to the movies. When they turned the building into offices, every time I would go in there, all the memories of the theater would always come back. Even now, since we still live here, and I drive past that property or walk past, I think of the good old days. <laughs> the good old days were the theater. <laughs> now I know what the people have been referring to my whole life, <laughs> what those good old days are. Well, Dad, thank you so very much for, for spending some time with, with Leonard and I, um, I've really enjoyed, I've, I've actually heard a few new things I hadn't, hadn't heard before, which is exciting for me. Leonard, anything you want to add before we thank our sponsor? Yes. Yes. No, uh, uh, yes. Totally. Thank you, Craig, for being a part, Mr. Hunterstrom for being a part today. And uh, I do want to, in closing, uh, my takeaway from this, I mean, it's, uh, I, I was hoping for a happier ending, but you know, when you dig through it all, there really is a happy ending. And, and my takeaway is uh, the person that tries has failed less than the person that ever starts. And so you all have a rich history of having done that and accomplished what you did, even though your father still went back to the mine and died. And even though the theater closed and even though it doesn't live on today but it, it, you have the richness of having lived what you've lived and done what you've done uh, rather than never having tried at all and that's that's a, a lifetime of experience there and uh, so i thank you for sharing that with us today and uh in closing today just uh, want to give a quick Note that in a couple of weeks, we've got Britt Andrietta that will be joining us on our podcast. You may remember Britt. She's the former chief learning officer of lynda.com that is now LinkedIn Learning, uh, and she has her own company now. She was on our 11th podcast where she spoke about grief, loneliness, and current events, which is uh, shortly after George Floyd passed away. And uh, so we're looking forward to having her back in the next couple weeks, uh, around about February 8th, she'll be on the program. We do want to hear from you, as always, recommend you reach out to us at our email account at furloughedmailbox at gmail.com, furloughedmailbox at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. 
and uh, share your stories and your insights and uh, hear, hear what it is that you would like to speak about to us. And then, of course, as always, we'll wrap up and mention our sponsor, www.upwordsunlimited.com. And they are an organization that helps folks in the learning world improve their conversations, connections, collaboration, and communities. And not just the learning world, but any organization or group of folks. With that, folks, we'll say goodbye and look for you next week. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.